I've told you all about that before, so I won't, I won't bore you for it. And I'm sure it'll come up for an illustration. So Genesis 15. Um, so we are finally back to the book of Genesis. In case you forgot what happened, God created the heavens and the earth. Right, I won't do that to you. Um, but Abraham is returning from his victory. You may re- recall that in chapter 14, and that's where he meets Melchizedek. And uh, that is where uh, we, we pick up. So let's read the first six verses. We're not going to make it past that. Uh, Moses writes, After these things the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. And Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. Behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. He brought him outside and said, Look toward the heaven and number the stars, if you are able to number them. And he said to him, So shall your offspring be. He believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. Now, chapter 15 is a big, big chapter. Uh, I don't know if you would put it at the level of chapter 12, uh, but certainly it is, it is right there one of the most significant chapters of Genesis and of the story of Abraham. I put chapter 22 up there with the sacrifice of Isaac as, as uh, important because in all three of these chapters, 12, 15, 22, the Abrahamic covenant is reaffirmed. Uh, it, it goes through a period of testing in, in each case. Remember that after the, the uh, covenant is made in chapter 12, Abraham then goes compromises it in Egypt. Here in chapter 15, Abraham is coming off the heels of a great battle, and he is in, in a moment of, of, of deep despair and doubt. In chapter 22, it involves the sacrifices of his, of his only son, uh, at least of the promised son. So, so in, in each section, we have God affirming uh, and establishing his covenant in the context of, of, of real difficulty. So let's start with Abraham, the, the prophet here. You'll notice the language right from the beginning. The word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Now, if you knew nothing about Abraham or anything, yet you had uh, a loose understanding of the Bible. Uh, that language may stick out to you. I, I was reading through it today, and I thought, that's, that's strange. That is really strange language. And, and, and the reason it is is because this is the language often and, and really almost only associated with prophets. I'm going to give you just a few examples. You're not going to think it's a few examples. But I eventually stopped, and I really aren't even giving you the, the obvious examples um, of this phrase. Uh, 1 Samuel 15, the word of the Lord came to Samuel. Uh, 2 Samuel 7, uh, but that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. In 24, when David arose in the morning, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Gad. Uh, now the word of the Lord came to Solomon. Uh, the word of the Lord came to Jehu, the son of Hanin, Hanani, against Baasha. Uh, um, uh, yeah, let's stop there. Uh, if you want really good examples, uh, I, I may miss some of these. Jeremiah does it multiple times in chapter 1. The word of the Lord came to me is what he says, but it's still the same thing. Hosea, Obadiah, and maybe Joel or Habakkuk, all the very first verse of their book. The word of the Lord came to Haggai. The word of the Lord came to uh, Obadiah. Um, and because this is language associated with the prophet. Uh, and so this is significant. Now, this is the only time, along with verse 4, it's repeated in verse 4, that this phrase is found in Genesis. Now, the Bible does describe uh, Abraham as a prophet. So you get in chapter 20, now then return the man's house, for he is a prophet. Chapter 20 is 
significant with, with Abimelech. And I believe that's Abimelech talking there. So he sees Abraham uh, not as a shepherd uh, or a landowner, but, but as a prophet. Uh, Jesus will say, in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. When you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets. Now, there's two ways to read that, the word and. Isn't that frustrating? Sometimes in English there's multiple ways to read a word, a simple word like and. That's one thing I learned about Greek. Um, that is either Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob separate from the prophets or Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob who are among the prophets. Either one can be grammatically correct. So your interpretation is, is really going to be how, how you see it. But there is at least biblical precedent to see Abraham and with that likely Isaac and Jacob um, as prophets. But certainly Genesis 20 makes it clear Abraham is viewed as a prophet. Now, we also see in this chapter, Abraham actually gives a prophecy. It's in verses 13 to 16. Then the Lord said to Abraham, he doesn't give a prophecy, he's given a prophecy. Know for certain that your offspring, your seed, we'll talk about that when we get there, because that's Genesis 3.15 language. Your offspring um, will be sojourners in the land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out of great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here. The fourth generation for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Now, it's obvious what this is predicting. Here, Abraham is given a prophecy regarding his own offspring that they will suffer bondage in Egypt. So remember, the first readers know that they're going to suffer in bondage for 400 years. So, so now they're seeing that this was all part of God's plan. God raised up Abraham. Uh, to establish a, a people he would make a covenant with to bless the nations. However, by the end of the book, uh, and really beginning of Exodus, their story is that the nations have become a curse upon Abraham's offspring. And what has God done? God has brought judgment upon the Egyptians. So as they're reading this in the wilderness, it started to make sense. This was, this was all part of the plan. Like, there is no plan B when it comes to God. You know, God doesn't stand up there and say, well, now what are we going to do? My guy lost the election. You know, he doesn't do that. All right? Now, that may offend you because you didn't vote for the guy that's in there now or the guy that was in there before. I don't know. You'll have to get over that because God ain't pacing back and forth. That's my understanding of sovereignty. He sits on a throne and all that he wills is accomplished. So, uh, also, one other thing, right? We're, we're six words into the, into the first verse, right? There's a lot more here than what we may think. This is... Uh, only this is the first of two times that Abraham is addressed directly by God. The other is chapter 22, take your son Isaac and offer him a sacrifice. So the word of the Lord came, came to Abraham in, in a vision. Uh, and notice what's the first thing God says? Thou shalt not fear. I don't know if you know how King James, I assume that's what it says. Feareth noteth, maybe it says that, I don't know. Uh, but fear not, don't fear. Even fear not isn't good English. Right. I, whenever I read Fear Not, what I read is the King James that we're, we're familiar with, and it's beautiful language. I told you all last week, I read like three books on the King James Bible and King James himself during, during captivity, I mean quarantine. And, um, um, but uh, uh, Fear Not, we don't use that language. So th this is an ESV, you know, translated last 20 years, whatever it is. We don't use that language. I think that's the King James sneaking in. But it should be Do Not Fear. You don't care about that. But anyways, uh, but do not fear. Now, let's pause there. Why would God have to say that? Well, there's a couple of things. One, 
every time it seems that God or a messenger directly from God uh, addresses humans, they panic, right? Their initial emotion is, I'm going to die, (laughs) right? I mean, that's it. Remember when the angels show up with the shepherds, right? Don't fear. I've got good news to give you. Not, 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 not bad news, right? Don't panic, right? Everything's okay, right? So I got that call today. And the voice on the other end was not the voice I expected. I'm like, oh no, what, what has happened, right? It's, 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 it's a mild panic. I've told a story before. John MacArthur uh, told a story once. He, he, he had a guy come up to him. MacArthur's a cessationist. He doesn't believe in tongues or, or some of the, the more charismatic gifts you, you have now. But, but a guy comes up to him and says, well, John, I, I talk to Jesus every day while I'm shaving. You know, and this sort of thing you get in a lot of charismatic stuff. And he says, oh, you do. One question for you. Do you keep shaving, right? If you're having a, theoph- a theophany, or you're really seeing Jesus in his essence, and he's talking to you, uh, you're going to cut yourself pretty badly. The, always, the first emotion is that of fear. And that would be true for all of us. It should scare us to death that we would be standing before a holy and righteous God, Right? But I think there's, there's a, a contextual reason why God has to say this. I, I see two reasons why Abraham should, should be uh, scared to death. The first is, uh, I think Abraham realizes that violence begets violence. That's to say that Abraham just rounded up the troops, went and laid a smack down to get his boy back, his, his nephew back, and now he's coming back. The reality of human nature is that violence does beget violence. We think that if we go in there and deal with it, the problem is solved. The problem is, is often there will be retaliation. You all know that my favorite story in the whole wide world, other than the Bible, that should be obvious, but we have to say these things now. Because uh, someone online will say, well, you don't like the Bible as much as... Obviously, I do. And I have dedicated my life to it. But other than that, my favorite story in history is the story of Beowulf. The whole point of Beowulf is to show that violence begets violence. Greed begets greed. It's very simple to prove it in the story because Beowulf the Geat and Hrothgar the Danes and everyone else involved, they are Vikings, right? And, and so you, you get to the, the third act of the story, Beowulf fights a dragon. And, and the dragon has his gold until a slave comes in and steals it. If you're familiar with Hobbit, this, this, the same story happens, right? Um, that the dragon wakes up whenever Bilbo steals, you know? Uh, it's, it's the same story. Uh, uh, Tolkien was a scholar of, of Beowulf, wrote the most significant essay on Beowulf. You don't care about that. Um, but, um, you know, why does the dragon do that? Well, he was stolen from, right? Yeah. How did he have the goat in the first place? Stole it, right? That's what dragons do. They show up, they breathe fire, kill everybody. They hoard their gold. So what happens when someone steals them, right? Now, the dragon represents Vikings. The story ends. It opens up with a funeral. It ends with a funeral. And at the end, Beowulf dies, spoiler alert. And, and his, his closest servant and friend, Wiglaf, he laments. He says, now that our great Giddish king, the slayer of monsters and dragons, is dead, the Swedes are going to come. Why? Because they hear there's gold to be taken. There's a kingdom to be had. And historically, we, we suspect that is exactly what happened. The Geats die out. Uh, there's, they, they may have found their way over to England. That's, that's, you don't care about that either. But it ends with saying, like, we've been able to hold back everybody, and we've stolen all this other stuff, but guess what's going to happen? They're going to come and get us. 
But guess what we're going to do? We're going to go get them. And then they're going to get us. This is a cycle of violence. By the way, have you started to notice this in our culture today? The second the right leaves behind Christianity and they're starting to do it, you're going to see violence beginning more violence, which then begets more violence. It is not an accident that after a year of violence in the streets dominated by one side of the political aisle, after an election, you get violence from the other side of the political aisle. This is what makes Christianity unique because Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. They don't know what they're doing. We had a situation in our neighborhood recently where two neighbors, where one neighbor in particular was very ugly. And all I could help but think was is that that sort of approach to problem solving is what then leads to this other neighbor wanting to have a shouting match, right? And guess what's going to happen? They're going to respond with a shouting match. And then it gets worse and worse and worse. So if you're Abraham and you just rounded up the troops to get your boy back, guess what's going to happen? They're going to come back. They're going to come back. Uh, the second thing is Abraham realizes that he's aging and the promises of God um, remain unfulfilled. And so you can see, he's saying, look, look, I've, I, I'm on a clock here and I'm running out of time. Uh, so there's a real fear there. He has left everything behind. By the way, this word fear in the Hebrew, I'm not a Hebrew scholar, but in, in, in my redneck way of doing it, this is only the second time this has appeared in the book of Genesis. Do you have any idea when it, when it appeared the first time? You'll, you'll notice it when you see it. It's chapter three, they eat of the fruit. And here comes God among his people. I heard you were in the garden. And I was afraid. It's interesting, isn't it? It's interesting. And the question will be, will Abraham believe the promises of God? Will he believe it? What Adam and Eve did was they didn't believe the promises of God. So they ate of the tree they shouldn't have. And that creates fear. There was no fear prior to sin. And there is no fear where there is righteousness. You don't need to fear. And this, this is where Abraham is. So notice that, that God identifies himself in two ways in verse 1. Don't fear. Why? First of all, I'm your shield. Now, if, if, if you vaguely know your, your Bible, if I did this today, I, I thought, God is my shield. That's somewhere in the Bible. It's everywhere in the Bible. Let me just tell you. In fact, I'm going to give you just a few examples because I had to stop. I could give you easily a dozen or two more examples just with the word shield. If we were to use the language of refuge, protector, something like that, I could give you three dozen more examples. Now, how many times do we read, God is my refuge and strength? Uh, today's funeral, I did the Lord is my shepherd. I will not fear. Why? Because your rod and your staff protect me. It's the same sort of imagery, isn't it? So let me give you just a few examples. Psalm 91, 4, no, no particular order. He will cover you with, with his pinions and under his wings you will find refuge. Notice the feminine language there of, of being under the wings. Jesus will use the same language later. But the wings are compared to a shield and buckler there. It is beautiful imagery. It's a softer imagery. So one is an imagery of war. When arrows are flying, I'm shield. The other is imagery of, of a mother with the, with, the, with the chicks, right? So Jesus used that. Proverbs 30, every word of God proves true. He is a shield of those who take a refuge in him. That's why you can take the language of God as refuge, and you can see that it's the same thing as the shield language. Psalm 18, Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. By the way, you can take those three metaphors, 
And you could find three dozen verses for each of those. Um, my God, my rock, in whom I take refuge, my shield. How many metaphors can you have in one verse? This is the winner, I think. Psalm 28, the Lord is my strength and my shield. Right? Psalm 144, 2, he is my steadfast love and my fortress, my stronghold, my deliverer, my shield, he in whom I take refuge. Right? All those metaphors right there. Psalm 84, uh, 11, uh, for the Lord is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. Psalm 119, you are my hiding place and my shield. I hope in your word. Uh, Psalm 33:20. Our Lord, our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help in our shield. You could do another three dozen verses about how God is our help, going all the way into the New Testament. Jesus describes in the New Testament. By the way, can I just pause? I always like to add this: when we see God is described as help, why does it offend us as Christians to see women described as a helpmate? Why is it okay we see God as help, but it's offensive for to see a wife as a helper? But anyways. Uh, my God, my rock, in whom I take refuge, my shield, horn of my salvation, my stronghold, my refuge. Right, and eventually you have to stop, right? You get the point. Uh, this is the first time we see this language used to describe God, but it is found everywhere. God tells his people over and over again, in me you have strength, in me you have a refuge, in me you have protection and security. So on the one hand, Abraham fears his growing age without an error, but this promise is important. Do not fear the future. Why? Because you're, you're safe. You're safe. God's got this. Don't worry about it. If he fears retaliation, this promise is important. Why? Because God protected him when he attacked. He'll protect him when he's on the defense. God will keep his promises. But not only does God say he is a shield, but that God is generous. Notice the, the language there in verse 2. Uh, uh, or verse 1, rather, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. God will protect and God will bless him. Of course, this is the promise of, of chapter 12. Uh, I will bless you and bless those who, who bless you, right? Uh, so he returns from battle. And you remember, he takes the booty. He gives 10% to Melchizedek. Uh, we're done with Melchizedek. But the rest of it goes to the other chiefs. He doesn't take any of it for himself. And so now what is God saying? He said, you, you've turned down that, but I've got something far greater for you. Now, Abraham's going to die. Um, and yeah, he's, he's going to be wealthy and all that sort of stuff. But he will die not seeing all the promises of God fulfilled. It's going to be 400 years plus before they are in the promised land as a nation. Abraham has been dead a long time, right? The patriarchs die believing it'll happen, but not seeing it, it happen. Heard a good line today that, the world says seeing is believing. The gospel says believing is seeing. I think there's some real truth to that. Some real truth to that. After all, in the gospels, particularly John 9, my favorite chapter in John, uh, John will describe him who, who, who formerly was blind, right? And, and that's the idea that believing is seen. Once you believe, your eyes are open. That's the beauty of, of the gospel. Um, so God offers Abraham something better than what warfare can. Well, this leads to Abraham's prayer uh, in verse 2 and 3. I, I think we should call it a prayer. Uh, notice the honesty. This is something that sticks out to me. O oh Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a man of my house will be my heir. By the way, notice it's poetic, and since there's parallelism, what he says in verse 2, same thing he says in verse 3. Right? And the point is, is I am growing in age. I have no son, and I'm going to have to give, uh, give the inheritance to someone else's son, another family. 
they will inherit it. This is a matter of, of great shame in, in the ancient world. It was, it was an honor of every man to give his son his land, his, 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 his possessions, everything. It's less that today, isn't it? The chances are um, when you, you had to clean out your parents, grandparents' house, whatever it might be, you didn't want any of it. Maybe one or two things. I'm going to get my grandmother's Bible. I never met my grandmother. You know, so it be really something special. But I, I, I don't really need anything else from my parents, right? There would be a few other things. Maybe we'll keep things, of course. Now, we all feel, feel that way, right? Uh, but as, at this time, it's very different. Uh, things were passed on for generation after generation. Now, uh, but notice here that God has promised Abraham the same thing. And what does Abraham say? God, I've heard all that before. I remember when long ago you said the same thing. Where are you at? Heard this line again in a sermon. It says, have, have you noticed in the Bible God is always late? He's always on time. And the best example of that is Jesus raising Lazarus. Very late. I mean, he's dead, buried. I mean, missed the funeral, right? <laughs> I mean, couldn't even show up to it. Shows up late and he's crying. And everyone's like, what are you crying for? The crying was, was like three hours ago. Are you even missed a fried chicken at the local Baptist church? What are you doing here? You're a little late, right? Now, doesn't your Apple Watch work? And so he's late, but at the same time, he shows up four days later to, to, to show that he's the resurrection life. He's, he's, he's on time. This is very typical of God. Right? So Abraham says, you're late. And God says, no, I'm on time. Right? But he says, look, look, I, 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 I don't want to be fooled again. So verse 2, he says, I continue childless. This literally means he is stripped bare. The lack of an heir was shameful and burdensome. And God insults him with these continued, unfulfilled promises. Um, and then he says there in verse 2, the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. Now, we know, uh, we know uh, really next to nothing about this person beyond some speculation. Now, it's strong speculation, but it's still speculation nonetheless. So, so Abraham's point is, you're adding insult to me. It's one to say that you're going to do something and I trust you and you don't do it. But you're adding insult in that I know that if you don't fulfill this, this is what's going to happen. Now, Eleazar the, uh, of, of Damascus is the head servant of Abraham's household. According to the Targum, which is a, a Jewish literature where they, they try to figure some of this stuff out in Jewish teachings, they argued he was the son of Nimrod. You remember Nimrod? That's Babel. I don't buy that. Uh, but I'm not an expert in this stuff. I don't know their argument, but I mean, it's fascinating to think about. Um, but some see him as the unnamed servant of chapter 24. If, if you want to see this uh, real quickly, there's a page or two to the right, maybe three pages. 24-2. Um, Let's just read verse 1 since, since we're taking the time to turn around. Abraham was owed, well advanced in years. That's offensive. And the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. And Abraham said to his servants, the oldest of his household, who had charge of all that he had. Right? And, and, and he's, he's been helping Abraham, but he's going to go find a wife for Isaac. Okay? And we'll cross that bridge months and months and months from now. Um, but who is this oldest of his household and uh, charge of all that he had? The assumption is, is that this is Eleazar of Damascus. Uh, and it was common at this time that if you didn't have an heir, the uh, head of the household, if you will, the, the chief person, would then, then, then would receive the inheritance. This is similar. It's a little different, but similar for the uh, parable that we saw on Good Friday. Uh, we looked at in Matthew where uh, the, the uh, 
father and sends servants to his vineyard. They kill him, and then he sends his son. And then the reasoning is likely, well, if the son's coming, the father is dead. So when the son dies, we get the, the vineyard. That, that is similar to, to what, what Abraham assumes is going to happen here. Um, now, Abraham prays an honest prayer. And I think there's some real application there. I find people are willing to be angry about God. They're unwilling to be angry to God. That makes sense? So you get a lot of people, particularly in moments of tragedy and grief and despair, they're angry and they're bitter and, and they, they will disrespect and tear down God. I've told you all before that there was a family that, that came where I served at before that the um, father, he's really stepfather, but, but was a, essentially a father, uh, he had died um, kind, of, kind of suddenly. It's really difficult, and the family had a hard time with it. And so they went to, through a period of anger and grief. Well, I didn't know any of this. They showed up at church and was, was just starting to, to, to guide them through some of these difficulties. Spent a lot of time with this family. And then, within about six months of that, the son, grown man in his 40s, he got a blood clot in his leg and died while sleeping. Now, I knew he had a bad leg. It was his knee. And uh, the doctor said, you need to have surgery, but do it whenever you want to. No rush. And this happened, and he died. And I remember visiting the family, knowing it was going to be difficult. And I remember saying, can I read a passage here? I was going to read First, First Peter 2 um, about how, how Christ suffered as an example for us. And I remember the mother saying, make it quick because I don't have a lot of time for this Bible. What you had was, was bitterness at God. Now, what if we took that energy and that frustration to Christ? That's what Abraham does here. But in his frustration, which you will find throughout the Bible, Job, Habakkuk, Jesus, God, if, Father, if, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. A sort of honest prayer that, that I think we're afraid to pray because we think lightning is going to strike. You read the Bible. Uh, Lamentations is an entire lament. It's, it's a prayer, and, and it's slowly written in poetry using the Hebrew uh, alphabet as, as a guide. We, we talked about this on uh, the, our, our uh, uh, candlelight service last Christmas. But notice that, that though there is frustration uh, and honesty from Abraham, there is not disrespect. How does, how does Abraham begin this prayer in verse 2? He says, O Lord God. Does it look strange? Does everyone have O Lord God? Anyone have anything different? O Sovereign God. Oh, sovereign God. What do you, what, you have the Holman Bible, I'm guessing? NIV. NIV. NIV's got sovereign. Sovereign God. Huh. Good deal. I'd be fascinated to see if, if Don were here, if, if, if what the message said. Is it, does anyone have sovereign God, uh, Lord God? It says Lord God. What word is in all caps? Lord God. You have Lord and God, like all the letters are capitalized? Okay. Is, is God capitalized? All of it. G-O-D, all of it. Does that look weird? What word is usually in all caps in your Old Testament? It's Lord. In fact, I bet if you went to verse 1, I'm doing this all off my head. Yeah, verse 1, it's all caps, Lord. Now, this is Hebrew here. The Hebrew is O Adonai Yahweh. Now, Yahweh is the divine name. The way we usually translate that in all of our translations is the Lord, unless you transliterated Yahweh. Um, here, Adonai means Lord. So if, if you want to stick to consistency with, with Yahweh, it would be, O Lord, the Lord, right? And that's just not good English. 
So what the translators do, virtually all your Bibles, King James on down, is when it's the divine name, they put it in all caps. So in verse 1, uh, the word of the Lord came, the word of Yahweh came to Abram in a vision. That's the divine name. When you see it, and even if it's a big L, but lower caps, the rest of it, that is Adonai. That's just the way for, for the translators. Now, you're not going to get this in the New Testament because Greek doesn't work this way. There is no divine name in Greek. That's a Hebrew concept, um, other than I am, but that's separate. So what you have here is the translator saying it's Adonai Yahweh. He is saying the divine name is Lord. Now, what is Abraham? He is a Lord, little l. And then he begins with, the Adonai is Yahweh. But in that respectful opening of his prayer, he's very honest. So this is, this is honesty, but, but, but it isn't sinful bitterness. Right? And, and so he's, he's needing an answer for, from God. He's saying, look, I go out here and risk my life. And I come home and I realize, what would, what would happen to my family? What would Eleazar do about my wife? What would be her story? I'm risking everything for Lot. He's not going to get my property. This guy is. There's reason for him to be afraid and frustrated with God. Well, let's look at God's response, verse 45. We've we got to move. This, I really thought we'd get out early, but I guess I should, should have known better. God reassures Abram in verse 4 by reaffirming his initial promise from chapter 12. So you see it there. Behold, the word of the Lord came to him. There's that language again. Um, this man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. Right? So this, this is the same promise we saw in chapter 12. We've seen it now in chapter 15. Um, his point is, in my good timing, this will be fulfilled. Do not fear, but believe. Do not live by fear. If only I can think of an application in 2020, 2021 about fear. But I can't think of one. You'll, you'll have to go home and make a list, let it start with a C and end with Ovid. But nevertheless, um, choose God's sovereignty. Choose to believe in God's power, not to trust in the uncertainty of your circumstances. Uh, that, that is so important. It's found in every book of the Bible, essentially. Choose to, to your, your identity be found in Christ, in God's sovereignty, not your circumstances. If you live by your circumstances, you'll be a miserable person in misery. Always be that way. You'll never have contentment, never have joy, never have love. After all, if you finally trust someone and you do the vulnerability of love, but, but, but what if something happens, right? And so you'll never truly love them. You're not going to live by joy if, if, if it's determined by your circumstances because bad things happen, right? You'll never be content because there's always someone who has more. But if, you're, if, if you rest in God's care, which is what he's asking Abraham to do, um, then then you will live by faith and not, not by fear. So what God does in verse 5 is he illustrates the promise. He said, look, this guy ain't going to be your heir. You will have your very own son. And in verse 5, he illustrates it. He says, look, go outside. Obviously, he's not in the city, which is the worst part of living in the city, that traffic uh, and the taxes. And he says, look, look, look up to the sky. And I want you to count the stars. Right, my son loves this stuff because he, you know, there's estimates how many stars and galaxies and all this sort of stuff. And he, he loves to see how, how, how humongous the universe is. And it's, it's unfathomable, really. Um, so, uh, now this is language found throughout the Bible. You, you're probably familiar with it. You've read it in multiple places. Genesis 22, I will bless you. I will multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven. All right? Again, chapter 22, very important. Reaffirm it after, uh, with the uh, uh, 
offering of Isaac, chapter 26. I will multiply your offspring, your seed, as the stars of heaven. will give you offspring on all these lands. Uh, Exodus 32, remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, Jacob, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as stars of heaven. Now, this is Moses interceding as priest, remember, uh, before God. Don't you remember your, your promises? Deuteronomy 1, the Lord your God has multiplied you. Behold, you are today as numerous as the stars of heaven. Uh, chapter 10, your fathers went down to Egypt um, looking for a soul to steal. Seventy persons, and now the Lord uh, your God has made you as numerous. By the way, notice um, Lord is capitalized, but God is not. Uh, all the letters, because that's Yahweh, the divine name, that's Elohim, the generic word for God. In case you ever read your Bible, you see something weird, it's what translators do. Deuteronomy 28, 62, whereas you were as numerous as the stars of heaven, you should be left few in number, right, because you, you, you did not obey. Right, this is his language throughout the Bible. Um, now, to Abraham, this is impossible, right? And that's the point. Will you choose to believe the promises of God, or will you not, and thus live in fear? That's really the big picture of this chapter, or of these six verses. What will Abraham do? Will he choose to believe the promises of God, or will he be like Adam and live by fear and doubt the promises of God? And it is that questioning, that doubt, that led to the fall of Adam, and, and it might just lead to the fall of Abraham. But then we get uh, verse 6. Verse 6 is a very, very important verse for us Christians. Notice how simple it is. He believed, believe is the verb in English for the word faith. Faith is the noun. He believed the Lord, and the Lord counted it to him as righteousness. Now, a couple of things. One, the word believe here means to stand firm. The, the noun form is used to describe the pillars of the temple. Stand firm. Believe. Now, we almost always translate it as, as, as believe, though the verb we, we don't, but, um, because that's what it means. But, but the idea, the etymology is that. Now, let's turn to Romans chapter 4. Because this is central, this one little verse, and its context is at the center of Paul's argument of salvation. This, this little story of Abraham having doubts, speaking honestly before God, Paul goes back and says, that right there is the gospel. What happens right there is the gospel. Right? And the context plays, plays an important role. Now, Romans, we, we've gone through Romans multiple times, and we've gone verse by verse, chapter by chapter. Uh, first three chapters, oversimplified, is uh, Paul indicts all of us, Jews and Gentiles, as sinners. For all have sinned, fallen, showed the glory of God, and the wages of sin is death, which is actually chapter 6. Chapters 4 and 5, he's going to articulate justification by faith alone. Chapter 5, he'll, he'll speak some of original sin, that, that, that we are of our, our father Adam, but there is a second Adam who comes, and we will either be of Adam or we will be of Christ, right? But he articulates um, 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 atonement. Chapter 4 is where he articulates um, the doctrine of justification by faith alone, and he does so by going back to Genesis 15. So let's start at verse 1. What then shall we, shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? If Abraham was justified by works, right? This is, this is the issue. If Abraham was saved because he did good things, he followed the rules, he kept the law, all that sort of stuff. If he was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. Think about it. If, 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 
If you do something, you accomplish something, you don't then go up to some random person and say, it's because of you I did this. No, you go up to that strange person and you say, look, it's because I'm the man. I'll illustrate this. Uh, yesterday was soccer practice. Monday, uh, we had a game in Henry County. We won. We came back. I was so proud of the team. Most proud I've probably ever been of any, any team other than my first team that we, we won a game in the tournament after losing every game before that. And, and so I was really proud of them. We, we were down at halftime. We got down 3-1. Uh, got a second before in the half. Scored two more goals. Held, held them back. We made some adjustments at them. They, they, they did it flawlessly. Just fantastic. So proud of them. Multiple goal scores, all this sort of stuff. Well, remember, I'm, I'm coaching middle school boys. And if you want to talk about egos, you need to hang out with middle school boys, right? But they don't know it's ego. It's, it's, it's hormones, but, but it's ego nonetheless, right? So do you think we had a good practice or a bad practice? It was the worst practice we've ever had. And I'm glad, I was in the suit, I was glad it was only one hour, not 90 minutes. But I lost patience with them because you couldn't get them to focus. They had forgotten everything we've been working on for, for two months. And I remember saying at the end, like, guys, I am so glad we didn't have a game today you would have been destroyed and it would not have mattered who, who we would have played. I mean, because of your ego. You're, you're going around here thinking we've arrived because we beat Henry County. There's a lot of teams better than Henry County. A lot of teams worse than Henry County. You could lose to them all, right? Now, the girls did play the next day, right? So they played Monday with us, Henry County. Then they played Carroll County yesterday. And they, they stomped Carroll County. Let me tell you, that made me happy because my wife's from Carroll County. And uh, we, we don't like them river rats. And, and I, I was thinking the whole time, I'm like, the boys would have lost this game. The girls wouldn't. That's a difference between middle school boys and girls. Girls hit maturity a little, a little sooner by a year or two than, than boys and everything. Well, that, that's, that's sort of what you have here, right? If, if, if you accomplish something, you can brag about it. But if you receive something, you have nothing to brag about except the giver. You can brag about how, how generous the giver is. That's Paul's point. If Abraham is justified by works, he can brag. Verse 3, for what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Does that sound familiar? Genesis 15, 6. That's the foundation of his argument for justification. Writing the Jews and Gentiles going back to the Old Testament. Now, to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due, right? If you work, you say, boss, I don't care you got any money or not. I want my money. To the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. So that's the key, that, that if Abraham worked, salvation is an entitlement. You're due it. But if works don't save, redemption must be a gift from the Redeemer. That's his argument. Then he quotes David. David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, those whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Obviously, the, the two biggest figures, well, I said it's three. There's Abraham, Moses, and David. And Paul turns to two of those. For his, actually, he turns to all three. Verse 9, in this blessing then, only for this, is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? Now, this is where context is important in Genesis. Has Abraham been circumcised? No. He hasn't. Has his household been circumcised? Then how is it he's declared righteous? That's his point. Abraham believed. And that's all he did. He believed that God would deliver on his promise. 
And God counted it as righteous. God declared Abraham righteous. That's the essence of the gospel. Believe is our part. Counting as righteous is God's part. Belief is the central part, including the ungodly, he says here. What the Jews do, this is a big issue in Galatians, is, is the Judaizers coming into the church and saying, yeah, you must believe, but you have to be circumcised. You got to keep the dietary laws. Right? You have to go to mass. I'm sorry, that's a, that's, that's a different, different group of people. Right? There, yes, there's Jesus, but then you have to have this. That is always an insult to the cross. It is to say, Jesus, thank you for getting me this far. Now I've got to take the reins and, and do the rest. That is not the gospel. The gospel is Christ is sufficient and he redeems. He gives redemption as the redeemer. All we can do is believe and, and receive. He goes on in verse 10. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. So it's, it's, it's a sign of faith. It is not faith itself. It is not salvation. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness will be counted to them as well. And to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised, but to but who also walk in the footsteps of faith that our father Abraham had before he circumcised. Here is the idea that the promise to Abraham is you will be a blessing to the nations, not a blessing to your nation. And when you make salvation about circumcision, you limit it to an ethnic group. Paul says, no, the promise is the nations, and this is given prior to circumcision. Salvation is not rooted in ritual or law. It is rooted in faith in Christ. Thus, by faith... We are sons of Abraham because it is by faith he was redeemed in the first place. That's Paul's point. In that context, again, he develops it more in Galatians. We are sons of Abraham, spiritually speaking. For the promise, verse 13, to Abraham and his offspring seed, that he would be heir of the world, did not come through the law, but through righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be heirs, Faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. So he says, the law later shows us that we are sinners. I, I saw uh, it was a short video. It was at the top of a bridge. It, it, the sign said, no fishing on bridge. And then the video then showed how high you were. It's like the highest bridge in the state or something like that. And then the caption was, this sign is here for a reason. There is no fishing wire that long. But there is some redneck who's trying, right? Every law you see is there because of transgression. It isn't to save you from transgression. It is because of transgression. And Paul's point here is that Abraham wasn't saved by the law. He predates the law. Moses comes years later, hundreds of years later. Um, and the language of heirs is rooted in faith, not in legalism. Verse 16 that is why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not just those that keep the law, not only to the adherents of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all, Jew and Gentile. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. That's from Genesis. In the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. So he raises the dead, Jesus, but it's spiritual death too. He gives life, but also notice he calls into existence things that do not exist. It's Abraham's belief, isn't it? 
Life will be in my wife's womb, even though scientifically she can't do it. God causes to exist that which is impossible. Verse 18, in hope he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No, unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our transgression. Here's the thing. I think it's chapter three. Paul will argue, could be chapter five. Paul will argue you are justified by Christ's death. Chapter four, he argues you are justified by his resurrection. And when the story at the center of it, the illustrated is right here in chapter 15, the first six verses. Despite all the evidence, he chose, unlike Adam, to believe the promises of God to be good and to wait patiently upon the Lord. And that faith produced and, 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 and made him declared righteous. And the language of righteousness is the language of justification. This is why 500 plus years ago, there was a monk in Germany having a crisis of faith. To the point he hated God, literally hated God, because he understood no matter how much good I do, it will never outdo my sin. And even in the good I do, it is tainted with poor motives. What I need is a gift, not a rule book. Until he's reading the book of Romans. It goes back to chapter 1, verse 17. It talks about righteousness, that the righteous will live by faith. But then when he comes to chapter 4, it clicks. Abraham was saved not because of what he did, but because he believed. And that simple reality changed the world of Martin Luther. And it's not long after that, he's nailing things to Wittenberg Church Door. In fact, last week was the 500th anniversary of when Luther stood before the Diet of Worms, stood before King Charles V, uh, the, the, the king of, uh, we'll call it Germany. It was not called that, but Germany will work. And he's asked, will you recant of your writings? And he, he essentially says, I will not recant. Here I stand. Changed the world. Knowing it probably lead to his death. All because of that one little verse in Genesis 15, verse 6. We are justified by faith. So you may remember a few years ago, uh, 2017 is the 500th anniversary of the nail on the the uh, 95 Theses, we looked at the, the five solas of the Reformation. We called it six solas because I added one. That is sola gracia, a grace alone. Sola fide, faith alone. Sola Christus, Christ alone. Um, uh, sola scriptura, the word of God alone. Uh, sola de, de gloria, for the glory of God alone. And I added sola evangeli, uh, which is my online ministry. Uh, it's the gospel alone. Right here. And that's some. All right.
you're, you're not getting out as early as I'd hope, but that's okay. It's COVID. It's nice to be out of the house. All right. Um, anything else?